Good evening and welcome to the uh, London School of Economics Literary Festival, which always sounds a bit like an oxymoron, but um, it's been running now for a couple of years and it's been great fun. Um, my name's Charlie Beckett, I am a journalist, I run POLIS, which is the media think tank. It's based in the, not surprisingly based in the media and communications department here at the LSC. Um, we do a whole lot of stuff around um, you know, contemporary international journalism including a big conference on the 23rd. So, naturally, I'm really pleased that we've got to... Please, tell us. It's all right, carry on. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I, know Nick, I know Nick and Heather can be quite intimidating sometimes, but um, they're honestly, they're, they're very nice people, really. Um, so I'm very pleased that we've got two of the most um, interesting, I think is the best way to put it, interesting journalists working in Britain, um, partly because of what they do. They both in their own right. Um, Nick has done some fantastic political journalism over the last whatever years it is. Um, journalism which is not just wonderfully written and fiery and passionate, but also very clever and incisive and often quite brave. And uh, Heather Brook, um, we also know as somebody who not only comes and talks about investigative journalism, but has done it. Uh, and done it in often under the most difficult circumstances, uh, battling against conventional wisdom, battling against uh, the bureaucracies, uh, back, battling it in a way against the sort of tide that you know the, the, the journalistic herd goes one way and Heather Brook goes the other way, and she comes up therefore with uh, stories like uh, the MP's expenses scandal, uh, which we're you know particularly grateful for Heather for having pushed forward um, before the Telegraph got their checkbook out and brought that to our attention. Tonight's uh, event I think is um, particularly relevant um, and topical. I mean I do a lot of work looking at media change and how you know, the digital revolution is going to um, uh, enhance our lives, enhance our journalism, but you know, you really have to think at every turn, just think of the news this week how, for example, the imagery that comes out of Syria, uh, filmed by um, the opposition factions in Syria, how that, that video is an incredible um, insight into what's happening in a way that we wouldn't have known before. Um, and in that sense, it's given much greater freedom of expression to people who are under the most um, appalling circumstances. But then you turn it around the other way and you think of something like the Russian elections coming up, We've got this fascinating idea that uh, Vladimir Putin is going to install CCTV into all the polling booths um, with the idea that this is going to be a transparency network that the Russian citizens were to click on a website and see that their polling booth is operating efficiently and uh, fraud isn't happening. And I think you, can all, you don't have to be too much of a cynic to think about how that could flip itself into something that was kind of Orwellian surveillance scenario. So there's this, there's this constant sort of um, uh, duality, if you like, about the situation we find ourselves in, that thanks to the internet, we have this wonderful opportunity um, for freedom of expression, thanks to perhaps the change in society, that taboos have fallen, that we have more free expression, apparently, and yet in practice it's challenged at every turn. Um, I'm going to kick tonight off um, with a short reading from um, my book, which has just come out looking at WikiLeaks which is a, you know, a good case study, if you like, about you know, the dilemmas around that we want freedom, to, that we want information to be free, and yet we 
all of us, I think, feel challenged when our privacy, our own privacy, is, is invaded. And then we're going to hear Heather talking about uh, her new book, The Revolution Will Be Digitised, and then Nick's going to give a reading from his book, which is, you can't read, that's completely forgotten what it's called, Nick, sorry. You can't read, luckily it's there, you can't read this book, uh, but you can, of course. Um, and then after that, we're going to go into... Um, conversation if you like but informed by you so get your questions ready so that you can jump in when Nick's finished as I say, I'm just going to give you a short burst of the wiki Nick's as partly as a sort of taster of the wider issues if you like and this book is a uh, just come out it's a history of, of WikiLeaks but it's much more important it's trying to talk about WikiLeaks in the context of um, what I called the, the the networked era um, WikiLeaks has made us reconsider how politics and journalism work it also makes us think again about the future of politics as well as of political journalism. But ultimately its real value may be to show that the very nature of journalism and news has changed. Political media, media once had a defined structure that created a limited product. They had quite a specific function in, in liberal democracies as the conduit of information between power and the people. And I guess in a way that conduit you could argue something of a sewer at times. Um, when you think of the recent revelations, but that was the idea. Uh, and the internet and the digital communications have the capacity to change that relationship. Something like WikiLeaks would have been literally impossible in the pre-internet age. The scale of the leak and the ability to spread it globally are enabled by the new technology and the net. But this is much more than the underground dissident journalism or the Samizdat of the Cold War period simply adapted for the digital era. WikiLeaks is a network exploit. It uses the internet in a radical way to gather material, to protect itself, and to tap into other networks, including mainstream media. And this allows it to communicate information in new ways. WikiLeaks' significance is that it's part of the shift in the nature of news to a process, a network system that's both contestable and unstable. So welcome to the wiki world and the age of uncertainty. Now ultimately there's no scientific measure that allows us to confirm or deny the hypothesis of a profound change in media, let alone politics, brought around by WikiLeaks and the other new networked political communications. We're still in a transitional period. Most digital pilots fail and WikiLeaks might fail too. And this serves to remind us that the idea of the radical voice and the critical witness changes as media history moves on, just as mainstream media change. The new news is new because the network is a new context. It's created for now an age of uncertainty, both for power and for opposition to power. Deliberate disruption by hackers, leakers and politically radical new activists is part of that uncertainty. The evolution of network dissent is both part of keeping the network open and a function of its openness. Now, journalism has always changed in its organisation and its nature, and this is partly a reflection of social change and historical circumstances as well as the technological innovations. Every time this happens, there are innovators and there are disruptors, who in Schumpeter's phase destroy creatively and sometimes create disruptively. Julian Assange and WikiLeaks have been carried by the contemporary currents of communication change, but they've also contributed an enterprise that's both significant and effective. 
In my view, WikiLeaks may not survive, and in retrospect, its revelations will be seen as large, but hardly decisive. WikiLeaks itself will be seen as significant and symptomatic, but not, in itself, game-changing. The partisan approach to judging WikiLeaks has plagued the debate, and it's prevented mainstream journalists and politicians from learning from the experience. Speaking as a journalist, I'd argue that instead of taking sides, we should be taking notice. Julian Assange is not the first journalist to have eccentric habits and a huge ego. He may or may not deserve moral or legal censure, but in the end, the WikiLeaks episode and its significance is not about Julian Assange, but about democracy and the citizen and the role of journalism in our networked age. The threat is not WikiLeaks and the new network news. It is still secrecy and the abuse of power. Right. So that's me on WikiLeaks, which I think seamlessly talking of the abuse of power leads into Heather Brooks. Please welcome Heather Brooks. Hello. Um, well, I'm going to read a couple of small sections from the book. And um, I'm going to read one section which is about filtering out free speech by design. And then I'm, if I've got time, I might talk a little bit about um, doing as uh, in the kind of information overload that we live. Do we know more or do we know less? Are, are we closer to the truth or are we further away? Uh, so this book is written in a sort of an, a strange way. It's written as a very, well, as a sort of compelling, one hopes, thriller-esque type uh, story. There's a, there's a narrative story throughout the whole thing. And it's basically the story of, of my investigation into the digital revolution and the information war. And in the course of the investigation, I got to know um, the people at WikiLeaks, among other people, and I got sort of embroiled into the whole like dark heart of hackerdom. And um, it was a very strange and intriguing world, but also disappointing, ultimately, um, with my own personal experiences. Of this new organization which pro proposed to be bringing a new type of democracy to the world and a new type of equality <coughs> of information sharing and uh, enlightenment values and then what I discovered was that the, the person leading it was in fact the absolute opposite of those things, it was tyrannical, it was quite patriarchal, was um, very secretive um, and was very much sort of dictatorial with his own staff and um, that was my disillusionment. It was sort of the course of the, through the story. It was my sort of initial, uh, and I think it, it was what a lot of people went through when they when they first encountered WikiLeaks. It was this great, um, this great sort of surge of idealism, and then uh, the so slow realization that it was run by humans. Human beings are fallible. They are not going to save us. We have to save ourselves. Anyway, that's just a little preface about this book. So within that narrative, there are sections of just uh, hard sort of hard news or reportage, and this is one of them. And this is about filtering out free speech by design. The OpenNet initiative, which tracks internet censorship globally, has shown that since 2002, the number of countries censoring content on the web has increased from 4 to 40. It's actually now about 60, last, last time I checked. Some of the biggest companies on the internet are now wondering how to protect their users from an onslaught of requests from police and state authorities. Google is coming under increasing pressure to hand over data on its customers <coughs> and remove pages from its global index. In Google's London office, Scott Rubin, head of public policy strategy for Google in Europe, Africa, and the Middle East, 
showed me a transparency application that lists the number of requests Google receives from governments around the world for user data and page removals. The top scoring countries include India, Germany, Brazil, the UK and the USA. There are no figures for China, as Chinese officials consider such demands to be state secrets. Even the censorship is censored. Censorship is growing overall, says Rubin, and we see that it's a growing problem. Google released its application in hopes that publicity might decrease the number of requests that aren't legitimate. By the way, that hasn't happened. It's, it's, it's continued to increase exponentially. It isn't just China. A number of liberal democracies are introducing filters, surveillance, and internet blacklists, and even kill switches that grant the government the ability to shut off the internet entirely. Internet service providers are compelled to use blacklists for filtering certain internet material. Australian broadband forum Whirlpool faced fines of $11,000 per day for posting a link to a blacklisted anti-abortion website. Wikileaks was on the Australian blacklist in 2009, though once this was made public through a leak that Wikileaks itself published, it was restored. Australia's Communications and Media Authority orders the censorship of sites, but as a department, it is exempt <coughs> from freedom of information requests, meaning there is no way the public can check to see which sites are blocked. When Wikileaks obtained the secret blacklist, it found the Australian government had understated the number of banned web pages by more than a thousand. Among the dangerous sites were two bus companies' web pages, online poker sites, Wikipedia entries, Google and Yahoo group pages, a dental surgery, and a tour operator. I, I should tell you that uh, in Britain we, have, we also have a blacklist, and it was originally set up by a conglomeration of the police and various human rights lawyers and um, other sort of uh, people in the NGO world. And over time, all those other people have left, and now it's totally controlled by the police. So it, we have a very similar situation to Australia. The Australian blacklist forms the basis of the government's proposed mandatory ISP-level internet censorship legislation. Many countries, including Britain, now use filtering systems to restrict internet access to outlawed material. In the UK, the Internet Watch Foundation keeps a secret list of websites that ISPs must block. In Germany and Canada, ISPs use similar blocking tactics. In Italy, gambling sites are blocked. There is undoubtedly content online that is <coughs> illegal, and by all means go after the owners of these sites and prosecute them. If that is not possible, then we need to know why it's not possible, and think about changing the laws. But those in power can all too easily use secret blacklists to silence opponents. There's every opportunity to block politically inconvenient or embarrassing websites that challenge authority. The internet decentralizes power to the extent that it enables free expression and free association. But across the world, there's a growing trend by authorities in both democratic and repressive governments to seek the means of controlling these networks, to use them to monitor all our speech and association in an efficient, centralized way. The great challenge in the digital age will be finding a way to harness the democratic effects of digital technology while checking its authoritarian tendencies. That's my first section. The second, I'll just, uh, I might just sort of do a little um, jumping around. 
This is, um, in, in this section, I've gone to Iceland to an investigative journalism conference, and it's the first place where I've actually met, I've known about Julian Assange for a long time, it's the first place I meet him, and I give quite a colourful description about what that first meeting was like, um, and, and now here I'm talking about this conference in Norway, and it, was, it, it struck me as being amazing because it was a, it was a conference for investigative journalism, and there was um, about 700 journalists there. And this is remarkable. I mean, it's amazing to me. It's amazing to me. And so I was talking to the organizers. How, how do you sustain this like, incredible level of investigative journalism in your country? And this got me thinking about what is the role of professional journalism in our digital age where anybody can take, you know, be a journalist. And I posit uh, in the book here that <coughs> professional journalism has one real unique selling point in the digital age. One reason why anyone would want to get their news from a professional journalist rather than any, anywhere else. The ability gained through training and experience of sifting through mounds of information for what is A, important, and B, verifiable as true. At a time of information overload, good journalists are more important than ever. And of course, being a journalist, I would say that, but I'm going to tell you why. They serve as the public's hired guns to collect information from various sources and challenge it for the purpose of distilling down what is important and true. The signpost, they signpost issues that are worthy of our attention. <coughs> it, and then I, I talk a little bit more. Um, I, went, I just had a thought while I was reading that. I went to a conference last week at UNESCO and there was a man from Reuters there, quite an old guy. His, he, he was sort of retired. And he was saying that in his day, in Reuters, they were paid not just for the stories they published, but they were also being paid for the stories they didn't publish. And that's not to say censorship, actually. Um, that's to say that a lot of the leads you get as a journalist are bogus or false, or they're misinformation, or they're smears, or they're rumors, and you have to go check them out, you realize that they're not true. Um, a prime example actually came at this conference where um, Julian hadn't, uh, he hadn't been invited to center stage for this conference. He was invited to come, but he was not going to be like the main speaker. And he was enraged about this. And so he issued a press release saying he'd been banned. Uh, and he sent it to everybody. Well, a few, you only had to do the most basic fact-checking as a journalist to phone up UNESCO and say, did you ban him from coming? And they said no, and they even had the emails to prove that he was in fact free to come if he wanted to. Um, but I, I was surprised that, the, that there was, uh, most newspapers didn't publish a story, because it's not a story, it's, it's false. Uh, but the, the Daily Telegraph did. They just like verbatim almost wrote, rewrote that press release. And so for me, that is one of the points of journalism, is it's not just about what you publish, it's about verifying things before you publish them. Because particularly in the digital age, um, this sort of old, this old uh, aphorism, um, a lie can be halfway round before the truth gets its beats on, is, is more true than ever. Because if you, if something's a lie and you put it online, it's already gone around the world before you can even start to do uh, some fact checking and fix it and then Anyway, it's sort of exponentially going around. And I, I, I talk about this, uh, <coughs> about this sort of exponential growth of, of data and the speed with which information is moving around um, that I think was first identified by a guy, uh, an author called Alvin Toffler. I don't know if any of you have heard of the book Future Shock uh, from 1970. I think it's an amazing book. It's, I mean, it couldn't be more prescient to today, and it's a fantastic book. Um, and he, he, he had this... Um, 
I guess I shouldn't, I shouldn't be reading another writer's work, <laughs> but he had this thing where he said, um, in three short decades, between now and the 21st century, millions of ordinary, psychologically normal people will face an abrupt collision with the future. Citizens of the world's richest and most technologically advanced nations, many of them, will find it increasingly painful to keep up with the incessant demand for change that characterizes our time. For them, the future will have arrived too soon. And for him, that's what, that's what future shock was. So for me, that, um, the point of journalism is that it be about verify, it be about signposting, sifting information, and verifying. And particularly, it's the verifying that takes time, because you have to call people up, you have to check facts, you have to cross-reference, you have to go look at raw data. And I'll just read, read the last section of my book. Um, but this is the only thing a journalist does that marks him out as professional. It's the only reason anyone would choose a well-known newspaper's website over an unknown blog. The newspaper as a brand has built up over time a reputation for challenging the powerful and giving people meaningful, true information. The press is not like any other business, and what it sells shouldn't just be rehashed press releases or celebrity gossip, but the civic information necessary for people to understand their society and participate in it. It's a check on political and financial power, or at least it should be. And that's, uh, I think that's quite apropos to today, because the problem we face in journalism is under increasing economic pressure, uh, most newspapers don't cover civic institutions anymore. They don't, uh, they've sort of forgotten that part of, of journalism. And equally, I think, as an audience, we have forgotten that part of, of our kind of civic obligation to be interested in powerful institutions. And as much as we can look at Rupert Murdoch and think, isn't it terrible that he did all these things? I think there is a there is a bit of responsibility on the public because they, by their purchasing choice, indicate what they want to read. And as much as uh, we can look at the Guardian and think, isn't it amazing that they that they broke and investigated the phone hacking story? It's done absolutely nothing for their circulation figures. And um, so, what does that say? It tells you that what does that mean? People. People don't care about investigative journalism. They don't care about holding power to account. They just want to read about sex scandals and tits. Um, but I, I mean, I don't. I, I hope that's not true. I don't think it's true. But I think we have to reassess what what information are we going to pay for? Because if you want quality information and you want information that's verified, somehow it has to be paid for. Leave it at that. This book is um, it's a history, really, of uh, the struggles for freedom for speech from 1988, the Salman Rushdie affair, uh, through to the present. And um, I, I, I wrote it as a history because um, uh, important though political theory is, it, it, to my rather empiricist mind, argument that theories always come out of struggle. They always come out of depressing problems of the day. So I, I, I try to get my ideas on, on freedom of speech together by, by, by looking at what has happened. And I, I divide it into three sections, three powers to oppress, God, money, state. Uh, and uh, the section on the power of religion to censor and to intimidate starts with Salman Rushdie and Satanic Verses, Israel and Versi Ali, and also cases you've never heard about, which you ought to hear about, there's wonderful Indian Muslim artists who are just persecuted by Hindu nationalists. There are um, 
and, uh, for no reason. The, the, these the, the dictatorial movements, they, they pick on tiny, tiny little things and then blast a culture war out of them. You can see it in America, you can see it in India, you see it in Pakistan, you can see it here. Second section looks at the power of money to censor, which obviously in Britain's case looks at the extraordinary power the libel law gives to oligarchs to shut debates down in Britain and used all over the world, but also the power of employers. I mean, you can go, you can stand up here, those of you in work, you can stand on a public platform, you can damn David Cameron uh, as much as you want. The secret police won't arrest you. You go into public and you damn your employer, you'll be fired, even if what you said is true, important, and you're feeling abuse of power. And finally, looks at the power of the state, where we get on to uh, the arguments of, um, of Heather and Charlie about the internet. Um, I'm not really arguing against them. I mean, it is a revolutionary technology. It may be the most important technology since the invention of movable type. It's too early to say, but it may be. Uh, I do try to argue against euphoria, though. The euphoria, certainly people of my age who, who, are, who can remember the world before that, the euphoria of having all this information at your fingertips, and you think, well, what do we need constitutions for and bills of rights and protections? We can get round everything. And I say in my introduction, where I try to explain... Uh, well as I can where the book's going I say um, I'm all for liberal optimism uh, and hope a new world is being born before euphoria carries us away however consider the following scenarios a young novelist from a Muslim family writes a fictional account of his struggles with his, his religious identity he describes religion as a fairy tale uh, and mocks the prohibitions of the Quran his writing shows he does not regard the life of Muhammad as exemplary quite the reverse in fact if word of his work seeped out in Pakistan, the courts will charge him with blasphemy, a crime, trouble in inverted commas, uh, that carries a death sentence. In Iran or Saudi Arabia, the authorities would arrest him and maybe kill him too. In India, they would confine themselves to charging him with, outra with outraging religious feelings. In most Western states, he wouldn't be prosecuted, but the publishing industry would inflict the worst punishment a writer can receive short of loss of his or her liberty or death. He would find... That although American and European countries do not have blasphemy laws uh, that protect Islam, or in most cases Christianity, the threat of violent reprisals uh, is enough to enforce extra-legal censorship that no parliament or court has enforced. An African feminist comes to Europe and denounces its tolerance of abuse of women in ethnic and religious minorities. Newspaper editors and television producers cannot get enough of her fresh and controversial voice. Arsenal religious fanatics murder one of her supporters and threaten to murder her, the mood changes. Intellectuals say that she is an enlightened fundamentalist who is as intolerant and extreme as the fanatics she opposes. Newspaper columnists complain about the cost of protecting her and accuse her of bringing rancor to their previous harmonious multicultural society. No one bans her book, this is her, I am her CIA, uh, but her work inspires no imitators. She becomes a leader without followers because women who agreed with her and were prepared to support her arguments look at the treatment she received and put down their, their pens. Two bankers meet for lunch and discuss an issue that has troubled them. Not one of the great newspapers that, is, that, that covers high finance saw the crash of 2008 coming. Nor did bloggers or net activists make it their business to find out about the, ranks, the risks that banks were running. The net was as clueless as a dead tree press. Insiders knew that the lust for bonuses and the pressure to accede to management, management demands for profits could have catastrophic consequences, but the information never leaked. The two ba bankers discussed writing a joint article for the Financial Times or Wall Street Journal, exposing the continuing failure to address the structural problems in Western banking. They think no intervention could help, 
but they immediately dismiss the idea. They know that if they revealed, if they said anything out of turn about their banks, they would be fired and they would never work in banking again. No other bank would want people marked as troublemakers on its team. A British newspaper reporter moves from politics to the business desk. She resolves to start digging into the backgrounds of, of, of the Russian oligarchs who have set up home in London. She has criticised British politi politicians without fear of the consequences for years, but her editor turns pale uh, when she talks about using the same tactics against plutocrats. The smallest factual mistake or unsupportable innuendo could lead to a libel action that could cost the paper a million pounds, and we don't have a million pounds, he says. She ploughs on and produces an article that is so heavily cut and rewritten by the in-house lawyers, no one can understand it. I want a thousand words on the fashion industry by lunchtime tomorrow, the editor says, when she starts work the next day. A member of the Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party reads a speech by Hillary Clinton. When countries curtail internet freedom, they place limits on their economic future. Their young people don't have full access to the conversations debate happening in the world or exposure to the kind of free inquiry that spurs people to question the old ways and invent new ones, Clinton said. Barring prisoners officials makes governments more susceptible to corruption, which creates economic distortions with long-term effects. The old communist is a man who has trained himself never to show his emotions in, ca in case they reveal weakness to his enemies in the party. But he thinks of China's booming economy and America's fiscal and trade deficit, and for the first time in years he fro throws back his head and roars with laughter. What follows is, is an examination of how censorship in its clerical, economic and political forms works in practice. It is a history of the controversies of our time and an argument that free speech is better than suppression in almost all circumstances. I hope that I will have convinced you by the end that limits on free speech, for there are always limits, should be few and the law must refuse to implement them if there is a hint of a public interest in allowing debate to continue unimpeded. My subject is censorship that hurts not spin or the unstoppable desire of partisans, news, partisan newspapers, broadcasters and now bloggers to preach to converted and dismiss or ignore news their audiences do not wish to hear. I accept, the press officers accept that press officers' manipulation of information is an attempt to limit and control, but manipulation becomes censorship only on those occasions when the law punishes those who expose the spin. I agree too that editorial suppression is a type of censorship because, uh, because it too, uh, uh, too ensures that readers rarely find a good word about trade unions in the right-wing paper or a sympathetic article about, about Israel in the left-wing paper. The effects are trivial, however, because those readers who do not wish to be spoon-fed opinions can find contrary views elsewhere. True censorship removes choice. It menaces and issues commands that few can ignore. Write a, a free-thinking novel and religious, religious terrorist, terrorists will come to assassinate you. Tell the world about your employer's incompetence and they will deprive you of your livelihood. Criticise a pharmaceutical corporation or an association of an associated alternative health quacks in Britain and they'll seek to bankrupt you in the English courts. Speak out in dictatorship and the secret police will um, escort you uh, to jail. Uh, the invention of the net, like all communications revolutions before it, is having and will have profound effects, which I don't seek to belittle. I don't want to be a about this. I'm not. Uh, um, uh, its effect on the ability of the strong and the violent to Im Im impose their views is less marked than optimists imagine, because they fail to understand the difference between effective control and total control. 
Everyone who wants to suppress, suppress information would like to remove all trace of it. When total power eludes them, they seek to impose limits. It may irk a Russian oligarch uh, that Reeves can find accounts of his mafia past somewhere on the web, or infuriate the Chinese, Iranian, and Belarusian regimes that distant sites escape their controls. But they are not threatened unless people can act on the information. Action requires something more than posts in cyberspace. It requires the right to campaign and argue in public. As we've seen in the Middle East, in dictatorships, it can require the courage to risk your life in a revolution. You can be a famous poisoner or a successful poisoner, runs the old joke, but you can't be both. The same applies to censorship. 99% of successful censorship is hidden from view. Even when brave men and women speak out, the chilling effect of the punishment their, their opponents inflict on them silences others. Those who might have added weight to their arguments and built a campaign for change look at the political or religious violence or the threat of dismissal from work or the penalties of overbearing judges and walk away. Technology can change the rules, but it cannot change the game. Freedom always has to be fought for because it is rooted in cultures, laws and constitutions, not in microchips and search engines. The struggle for freedom of speech is at root a political struggle, not least because the powerful can use new technologies as effectively as the weak, as Evel was pointing out, often more effectively. Today's techno-utopianism is at best irritating and at worst a dangerous distraction because it offers a comforting illusion that we can escape the need to fight against reactionary and unjust governments, regimes, organisations and movements with a click of a mouse. Contrary to, to the shallow views of utopians, technology cannot ensure progress. When it comes, progress in human affairs does not advance in a straight line. It bends and it swerves and sometimes it retreats. Today's debates assume that we are living in a better and more open world than our oppressed ancestors. The most striking argument against modern complacency is to begin this book by looking at that most contentious and dangerous of forces and observe that we were free to challenge religions that claimed dominion over men's minds and women's bodies 30 years ago than we are now. In 1988, Salman Rushdie, for one, thought that a writer could criticise religion without running the risk that fanatics would murder him and everyone who worked with him just for telling the story. Now read on.